Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number four of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. It is February 28th. 2021. Today we're going to discuss the concept of buying the dip. We'll explain what that is, but there are a lot of dumb, misinformed opinions out there on that idea. Then we'll talk about inflation, which is a a hot topic during COVID that has some experts pretty worried. And we'll end with a listener question from from across the pond, from England, uh, a friend who asked about something called absolute return funds. Sound good? With that, let's start the show. Buying the dip. Ugh. It, uh, it's got a pretty easy explanation. The dip refers to a dip in the market, usually in the stock market. And this week, the S&P 500 had a 2% dip and then a small recovery. Later in the week, there was a 3% dip and then another small recovery. And some people out there who I follow, and and maybe people who you might be following to or paying attention to, they were advising their followers to buy the dip. Now, on its surface, there's some logic here, and and I think it makes sense. If stocks are 2% or 3% lower today than they were yesterday, then it makes sense to buy them today as opposed to yesterday. Prices are better today. Now, that's, that's level one thinking. It totally makes sense. But if we do some homework, Maybe we try to peel back the onion a little bit. The buy the dip argument starts to fall apart. So let's go point by point. Point one, as I mentioned, the S&P had a couple dips this week, hitting a low of 37.90. So if 37.90 is a good time to buy, you know, buy the dip, buy it at 37.90. Well, then we should ask, when was the last time the S&P 500 was at 37.90? And were people equally excited to buy then? The answer is that the last time we were at 37.90 was on February 1st, 2021, about four weeks ago. And at that point, the S&P was consistently on the rise. It had been rising and rising and rising, and it rose up to 37.90. And not coincidentally, nobody was talking about the opportunity to buy at 37.90 then. It seems some people have such a short-term memory that they can only compare stock prices to the way things were yesterday or the way things were last week. But if you compare them to the way things were four weeks ago, their their comparison skills uh, aren't quite as sharp. You see the logical fallacy here? It's just like your mom getting excited for a 20% sale at Sears on a $100 jacket. You know, but mom, that, that same jacket cost $80 last year and you weren't excited for it. Why are you excited for it now? Oh, well, it's because of that 20% off. You feel like you're getting a deal. It's perfectly human. It's perfectly irrational psychology at play. We all suffer from it in some way, shape, or form. But we need to convince ourselves that it's irrational and try to look at the big picture. You know, is $80 for that jacket a good deal? Is $100 for that jacket a good deal? And similarly, if we say that the S&P at $37.90 is a good deal this week, then we should go back and ask ourselves, did we think the same thing four weeks ago? And if we didn't think the same thing, we should ask ourselves, why? 
Okay, point number two against buying the dip. The whole idea, buy the dip, it begs a second question, or at least it does to me. And that second question is, with what money? You see, in order to buy the dip, you have to have some money sitting on the sidelines that has been doing nothing. Just cash sitting there, waiting for a dip so that you can then buy. In investing circles, this money sitting on the sidelines is known as dry powder. So then let's go another level deeper. If you have dry powder, you have to ask, was it smart to have that dry powder sitting there on the sidelines in the first place? Now, what's your system for holding or allocating dry powder? You know, why would you, what, what constitutes a dip for you to actually act upon? For some people, the answer might come back, I don't have a system. I just decide to hold money on the sidelines. I just decide to hold dry powder because I feel like it. For other people, they might say, well, I, I do have a system. Uh, I put X percent of my money into cash, and whenever the market drops by Y percent, I deploy that cash, I deploy that dry powder, and I buy stocks. So let's look at those two systems of thought. Number one was, I don't have a system. I do it by feel. To me, and I think to many other people, this is the definition of timing the market. Real professional investors can do this because they work 80-hour weeks studying the markets. They are experts. And they are the experts that you and I are competing against, right? I mean, there are sharks in the pool. The marketplace is a, is a free-for-all. They are the ringers at the poker table. Personally, I don't have the time or the ego to presume that I can compete on their level. And since I'm investing for the long term, I really have no interest in competing on their level. I also have no interest in making short-term market timing decisions. So the whole, I don't have a system, I do it by feel, I keep some cash on the sidelines and put it in whenever it feels right, I, I can't jive with that with my long-term plans. Now, the second idea, though, was I have a system. I put X percent of my money into cash, and whenever the market drops by Y percent, I deploy that money and buy stocks. I do think this is better than having no system at all, but we have to ask, would your system have worked in the past? Uh, that's usually the way things work in investing circles. Whenever someone comes forward and says that they have a strategy, a stock market investing strategy, we backtest that strategy against historic precedent. We say, well, we've got 150 years of stock market data. Would your strategy have worked over those 150 years? For these wait and buy the dip strategies, the answer is no. The strategy would not have worked in the past. At least if you had played by your own rules, if you had stuck to your strategy, there's no buy the dip strategy that would have outperformed a simple buy and hold strategy in the past. Uh, in the show notes, I'll link to a blog post that, that proves that fact. In my mind, that means there's no reason to think it'll work in the future. Uh, we discussed here in episode two of the Best Interest Podcast about how the market has always trended up over time. So while your cash is sitting on the sidelines waiting to buy the dip, odds are the stock market is going to be leaving you behind. So a super simple example, it's a complete hypothetical example. It's not even from real data, but I think it'll, it'll help illustrate this idea. Say you're holding on to $1,000 in cash. You're waiting to buy the dip. You decide that if the market drops by more than 10%, then you'll buy. 
But what happens if the market increases by 15% and then drops 10%? Will you buy? Because the fact is, you'd be buying in at a higher price than where we started. You'd be buying in at a higher price than before that 15% increase. Or you could decide, nah, it went up 15, it went down 10, I guess I'll wait for a bigger drop. But now there's a problem. You're breaking your own system, and now you're deciding to time the market. And for all you know, what you're going to face are a series of 15% increases, 10% drop, 15 up, 10 down. That's been the trend of the market over time. It goes up more than it goes down. So while you're holding on to cash on the sidelines, odds are the market is going to be running away from you. An opportunity is going to be running away from you simultaneously. If we know that buying the dip isn't very smart, we come back to the simple advice that people don't always want to hear. And that advice is to set a regular investing frequency and stick to that frequency. Stick to it in the good times, stick to it in the bad times. Try to take those regular investments, and if you can, diversify them. As we discussed on episode three, diversification is a way that we can reduce our risk while maintaining a rate of return. What a phenomenal, a phenomenal trade-off. So ignore the news, ignore people yelling, buy the dip, just stay the course. Now, I noticed another interesting pattern out there last week. While some folks were saying, buy the dip, other people, other experts, they were asking, is this the beginning of the end? Is this the wild bull market finally coming to a crash? So I thought that was worth addressing, worth talking about here on the Best Interest Podcast, because yes, we are in a giant bull market. And we have been for the past 10 years, except for maybe uh, last March, last April during the COVID crash. Yes, the stock market has recovered from that COVID crash. And people find that understandably confusing, frustrating, out of touch with reality, a bit frothy. So we might be approaching a crash. It's true. It's understandable. Uh, I certainly don't know the right answer. I'm continuing my simple, regular frequency investing strategy, dollar cost averaging, because I don't know if a crash is coming or not. I don't presume to know. Um, but I understand why some people think that. But I want to lay out an interesting idea from you from uh, the book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Mulkeel. Mr. Mulkeel, or maybe I should say Dr. Mulkeel, said, if everyone agreed that the market would crash tomorrow, well, then the market would just crash today. Does that make sense? Let's explain it a little bit. Let's say stocks are a stock is $20 today. But everybody knows that because of some piece of news, the stock is going to go down to $15 tomorrow. If everyone knows it's going down to $15 tomorrow, why would anybody buy it for $20 today? It doesn't make sense, right? The news from tomorrow would get pulled back and would get priced in to today's prices. People would only trade at 15 or potentially less today because they know tomorrow's price is going to be 15. The news from the future gets pulled back to today and gets priced into today's prices. So since the market isn't crashing today, the conclusion that we can draw is, well, nobody knows if the market is going to crash tomorrow. And yet, some people see 2% dips in the market, and they ask themselves, is this the beginning of the crash? Is this a sign that something's not right? Is this the bubble starting to pop? I understand the questions, 
And, and hopefully you understand the questions too. The market has been running hot. But remind yourself, nobody knows the right answer to those questions. And if everybody agreed on the right answer to those questions, well, then the market would simply react today, not tomorrow. So you can look at the stock market. You can say that what's going on right now in the stock market is speculative. I understand that idea. Uh, its end is inevitable for sure, but it's not predictable. That's an important differentiation. So I'll say it again. The end of every bull market is inevitable, but it's never predictable. So keep that in mind. Let's switch gears to uh, story number two today. It has to do with the fear of inflation. So it's another big story from this past week. It came from Michael Burry. If you don't know, Michael Burry was immortalized by the book and the movie, The Big Short. He's the guy who uh, Christian Bale played his character in the movie. And what exactly did Burry do? Well, back before the 2008 uh, stock market crash and financial crisis, Burry correctly predicted that the housing market was going to crash. And he made about $800 million on his correct bets. So now, uh, Burry is predicting that the U.S., uh, the economic stimulus packages that we've been passing during uh, the COVID pandemic are going to create a Weimar-style inflation. So we'll, we'll talk about exactly what that is. But Burry, he sent out a tweet this past week. He's been tweeting a lot. Uh, it was a tweet about inflation. It came along with a, a picture of a, a German, this is from the 1920s, of a German citizen pushing paper money in a wheelbarrow. The guy had so much paper money that he had to transport it in a wheelbarrow, uh, but the money was so worthless that it really, you know, it was like a loaf of bread worth of money, and he had to push it around in a wheelbarrow. And that was due to uh, some catastrophic inflation that occurred in Germany in the early 1920s. So Michael Burry tweeted warnings about inflation, tweeted pictures of Germans pushing around money in wheelbarrow, uh, wheelbarrows, and uh, tweeted a, a book about the Weimar inflation, about that German inflation in the early 1920s. So suffice to say, he didn't come right out and say, we are going to suffer inflation like the Germans did in the 1920s. But, you know, there's the implication. So uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. I find it very interesting to think about let's try to explain some of these ideas a little bit. This is right after World War I. Uh, Germany was forced to pay massive reparations to France, Belgium, the other allied forces in World War I. Uh, and that really decimated the German economy. And as a result, in the 1920s, they suffered from catastrophic inflation. An example of this inflation, uh, a loaf of bread in Berlin, in the end of 1922, would have cost around 160 marks. And at the end of 1923, would have cost around 200 billion marks. So Germany, uh, they couldn't make their reparation payments. Their economy couldn't support it. Uh, France and Belgium invaded Germany to control the uh, Ruhr Valley, this industrial sector, industrial area in Germany. Basically said, fine, if you can't make your payments, we'll squeeze the money straight from the source. And that just compounded the issue, made it worse. Uh, some historians say this really planted the seeds of hardship and poverty, of discontent and nationalism in Germany. It's often cited as a direct uh, antecedent event to World War II. So, saying we're about to see Weimar-style inflation here in the United States, that is some pretty hot language. 
It's meant to make you feel something. Uh, inflation isn't good enough to describe it. Neither is hyperinflation. No, we are going full Weimar inflation, according to Michael Burry. So I was really glad when I heard this idea come from him. I was really glad that I heard some well-respected economists, experts, investors, some other voices in this personal finance and investing space come out and say, hey, Michael Burry, you know, good shot, good call back in 2008, but what are you talking about right now? So let's look at that. Uh, first, let's look at Burry himself. Uh, he's an interesting guy. And I think we humans, we give special credence to the underdog. So we see Michael Burry and we say, man, this guy was willing to go against the flow in 2008. He made a bet that everyone else said was crazy, but he was right the whole time. And look at how it paid off. We love that story. It is an awesome story. It makes us inclined to give Burry the benefit of the doubt again. I mean, he's the guy who called the long shot correctly last time. Why wouldn't he be calling the long shot correctly this time? But, my listeners, there is a fallacy here at play. We have to see past the person and look at the facts. People who think that Burry is always right, I think they're the same people who think their dad is the strongest man in the world. You can't take some local fact and extrapolate it out to the extreme. Forget about who Michael Burry is as a person who got an awesome call right in the past and just look at the facts right now. So in general, what causes inflation? It's an imbalance between supply of money and the demand for products and the supply of productivity. If demand goes up but productivity stays the same, well then prices will increase. That's one example of inflation. If the supply of money goes up but the demand for products stays the same, then you'll have more dollars in circulation to pay for the same number of goods. Again, prices will go up. That's inflation. Now, a double whammy can occur if the supply of money goes up and the supply of products goes down. You'll have more money to pay for less stuff. Both of those factors are going to drive prices higher. Hyperinflation. And really, that's what happened in Germany in the 1920s. I'm simplifying things a bit, but the German government basically tried to print its way out of the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles is what mandated that they pay those reparations to France and Belgium and others. And the German government said, okay, if we have to pay you guys all this money, can't we just print more money? Well, that increases the supply of money in circulation. And meanwhile, the German country itself had lower productivity after World War I. Their economy shrank by about 40% during the war. So, and the I forgot, the productivity was further lowered when France and Belgium came into the Ruhr Valley. So they had more money and they had far fewer goods from their economy. And hyperinflation ensued. So let's compare that to the USA. The US right now is a global superpower and we are living in a globalized economy. Neither of those was true for Weimar Germany. The US economy has not shrunk by 40%. In the past uh, past few years, for sure, but Germany's did. Uh, the U.S. created three trillion dollars during the COVID pandemic as part of the stimulus plan against our twenty-one trillion dollar gross domestic uh, domestic product, which is a measure of how healthy an economy is, how much uh, an economy is producing. Now, the Germans they created sextillions of marks, not billions, not trillions, not quadrillions, sextillions of marks against their much lower GDP. 
The point, you guys, is that this is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. The U.S. is not Weimar Germany, and the U.S. is not going to go through Weimar-style inflation. Now, some inflation? Maybe. Completely possible. Would that make sense after the COVID relief bills? Absolutely. Am I worried about it? Not, not really. Uh, the U.S. makes a lot of stuff. Our economy can absorb new money better than any economy in the history of the world. And we can go back to that supply and demand example. Our economy can absorb a higher supply of money because we are capable of producing enough stuff to absorb it or increasing our production to absorb it. One thing that I've learned about inflation in the past couple years of, of running the best interests is that many economists are good at explaining inflation in hindsight, but most admit that it's really hard to talk about in the future. And those are PhD economists. So when you step back into the realm of semi-famous investors like Michael Burry, pundits like my uncle Jim Cramer, uh, bloggers and podcasters like myself, now everything we say needs to be taken with a big grain of salt. So, what are your thoughts on inflation? Let me know. Tell me if I'm wrong. Let me know if you're concerned. We'll go over some contact information at the end of the show. Uh, but for now, I want to turn to a great listener question that comes from Neil. Neil asked me, Jesse, do you have any thoughts on absolute return funds as an allocation to diversify away from stocks and bonds? Not sure how popular they are or if they have a different name in the U.S. Well, cool question, Neil. And at first blush, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of absolute return funds as a, a specific type of investment. So I did a little research. Um, as the name implies, listeners, it's a fund that you can invest in. And the goal of that fund is a steady annual return. So the stock market is up 20%. Well, the absolute return fund might only be up 5%. Uh, but if the stock is stock market is down 20%, well, then the absolute return funds still might be up 3 or 4%. So no matter what other markets are doing, the absolute return fund tries to stay diversified enough so that it can give you a steady absolute return year over year. Nothing is guaranteed, but the absolute return fund tries to find a way such that it can give you something close to a guarantee. Um... I was reading around online, some U.S. financial sites say, oh, we, we do have absolute return funds here. We call them hedge funds. But that's actually a little misleading, in my opinion. Hedge funds, which many of us have heard of, they try to do something similar. They often mix, uh, mix different risk levels. They try to hedge their bets. It's where they get their name. Uh, and that's a similar feature to the absolute return funds. But U.S. hedge funds are incredibly varied in their mission statements, varied in their long-term goals, varied in the bets that they're willing to make, uh, whereas a true absolute return fund is focused in its mission. Its mission is low and steady returns, period. Uh, from what I can tell, Neil, absolute return funds are not very popular in the U.S. In recent years especially, uh, there's been a net outflow of funds, net outflow of money out of the absolute return funds meaning more people are taking money out than they are putting in. More people are, are withdrawing their investments than are depositing investments. And why is that? Well, when people see that they're making 4% in an absolute return fund, 
when their buddy is making 10% in a simple stock market index fund, they want to switch. But if and when we have a, a big stock market crash, we might see the flows reversed. Suddenly, a 4% return is going to look really good compared to a 20 or 30 or 40% loss that the stock market might see. As I mentioned on episode three of the podcast, I use an investing method called a lazy portfolio. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll talk about it on next week's episode. We'll see. But in essence, I own four unique index funds, some U.S. stocks, some U.S. bonds, some international stocks. Uh, my timeline is somewhere between 15 and 30 years out into the future before I'd ever want to sell. So even if there's a uh, near-term crash, uh, for me, I'm not very concerned about that crash. I don't want to sell my investments until much later when I believe that the market will have recovered from that crash. So I'd rather have 10 and 15% returns now, even with the possibility of some crashes in between, because I'm going to end up in 15 or 30 years in a better place than if I just go with a simple 3 or 4 or 5% return every year from the Absolute Return Fund. Uh, for someone approaching retirement, though, the risk mitigation that you get from an Absolute Return Fund, I think it makes complete sense. Uh, I could see a very logical argument in favor of an Absolute Return Fund over something more risky. So, Neil... Thanks a bunch for the great question, and uh, congrats to you and Misaki on your recent good news. And there was uh, one more quick listener question that I got this week. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one. They asked me, pretty simply, Jesse, what's the goal of the best interest? It's a good question. So uh, I do have a little mission statement. I want to improve lives by teaching valuable skills, valuable knowledge. And I think that personal finance and investing are tangible, vital, and universal knowledge sets. So to me, improving personal finance is equivalent to improving people's lives. That's the mission. It's something that I've loved devoting time to, and I want to devote more time to. So guys listening here, maybe, just maybe, you can help. First please send me your questions. I love answering listener questions. And really, that is a direct way to help people improve their personal finances. Um, you can email me, jesse at bestinterest.blog, or you can find me on Twitter. My username is bestinterest underscore jc. You can subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a review. The idea there being, I'm trying to get this information out to more people. And, and you can help me in that mission if you so choose. Be very appreciative of it. And indirectly, the, the third goal or the third idea here is similar to the last one. Please feel free to share this content. Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest and sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. So that's the goal of the best interest, to invest in others' knowledge, to help other people improve their lives. And with that, guys... Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode four of the Best Interest Podcast.